you would, again, join me there in Matthew chapter number 16, and I'd like to begin uh, reading there in verse number 13, if we can. Matthew chapter 16, we'll begin reading in verse number 13, where the Bible says, when Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist. Some, Elias, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. With the Lord's help, throughout this day, we uh, will not be able to finish this message in the morning service. We will continue this thought tonight. But I'd like to preach a message that I've entitled, Christ's Church. And Jesus says very definitively there in verse number 18, he says, I will build my church. So this church is not our church. This is not the pastor's church, not even the people's church. If this is truly a biblical church, it's really Christ's church. And I'd like for us to consider that thought together today, not just this morning, but we'll continue it on this evening. And so we certainly would encourage you uh, to be back in your place tonight at 6 o'clock p.m., if you can, as we've already said, today, of course, is the 64th anniversary of our church, and it is the world's worst-kept secret that I love this place. I love my church. My relationship with this church as its pastor is unique because I grew up here. I, I think that's a little different and, and uh, maybe a little bit special, at least on my end. Most pastors that I know, most do not get to pastor or shepherd the church that they were raised in or the church that they were saved in or the church that they were baptized in. I was, uh, I, I was saved as a result of this church and uh, several years ago, 32 years ago, I was baptized. Well, I was going to say in that tank, but it's not that tank. That's a new one we just put in and Lord willing, that'll be up and running by next Sunday. I know many of you, several of you are waiting to follow the Lord and believers baptism. But I was saved in, in, in this, as a result of this church and I was baptized uh, here in this place as well. I was raised in this place as you sit here on Sunday morning, Sunday morning after Sunday morning, I did the same thing. I was here Sunday night, Wednesday night, I was here for special meetings all the way through. And what a blessing that is to be able to pastor the church that you were raised in. You know, that can be a blessing or it can be a curse, right? Uh, in some respects. Uh, for me, it has been an extraordinary blessing. It has been one of the high honors of my life to be able to function in this role as the uh, pastor of this church. And uh, to do that for the past three years has been a blessing. Prior to that, God allowed me to serve uh, as part of the pastoral team for 18 and a half years. And, and of course, uh, for the past 43 years, having been born and raised in this place, uh, I was thinking this morning the church was uh, 21 years old when I was born. That's hard for me to fathom and, and to believe, uh, but that is the case of things. And, and I just want to take a moment to wish our church a very happy 64th birthday. 64 years ago, we launched out by faith, 
And God has blessed beyond what any of us could have ever asked or thought, right? It's amazing what God has done in this place. Our church, for those of you that may be unaware, was established out of the Akron Baptist Temple on August the 10th of 1958. And and so as a result, we celebrate our, our founding on the second Sunday of August every year since. The church was born thanks to a Uh, A young couple, a a young man specifically by the name of Roy Thompson, who had a strong burden and a desire and a and and a calling in his heart to to come here. Even though even though there were people that advised him against it, and they said, "Don't go there. That's not a that's not a place that a young pastor would want to go and try to start a church." Others, perhaps men that are better than you, have gone and have started churches there and and uh, and have failed. And, And yet, God was in the thing. There's no doubt about it. That God was in the middle of the thing and he came in spite of those advising him not to come why because someone someone more important and someone uh, that that he needed to honor more was telling him to come and that was the holy spirit of god and there's no doubt that god was preparing a people for a church and god was preparing a pastor for the people that were here already and there were folks that were moving this way that had a christian background and and were going to be looking for a solid church that they could worship in and raise their family in and certainly there were hundreds if not thousands of people that had no religious background or connection whatsoever and they needed the saving grace of jesus christ desperately and so god brought all of these things together and, and we're thankful that he did in those days churches were started they were started oftentimes in a home now imagine that for just a moment I don't suppose we do that too much anymore. If someone were to come and invite you to church, you'd say, where is it? And you'd say, well, it's in this neighborhood. And they'd give you the address. If you pulled up and it was a residential home, you probably would turn around and go somewhere else, wouldn't you? You know, I don't want to go into somebody's house. That's where they live. That's, you know, where they do life. And, and I don't know that I want to do that. But in those days, that was quite common. And it was in the living room of a home on Memphis Avenue, exactly two miles from where we sit together today, was where that church was born. I'm given to understand on that first Sunday, I think they said there were 11 people that were in attendance. And, uh, and, and my, how God has blessed since, since that time. Within, a, within a, short, uh, a short time, a year or so, I think, the congregation outgrew the modest little home there on Memphis Avenue, and, and then they began to rent a theater just a few doors down from the, from the house, a few blocks down, I guess I should say. And it wasn't long after that that the Lord blessed this congregation with this land that we're on today. And we've been here since the early 1960s, and the rest, of course, as they say, is history. Now listen, these things are all great to reminisce and to look back at the past and to think about where we started and where the Lord took us to and where we are today. Uh, And I'm thankful for that, but can I say that churches are not about buildings and churches are not about property. You know, that house where the church started was torn down years ago and was replaced with a McDonald's. If that's not progress, I don't know what is, right? It was replaced with a, it was replaced with a McDonald's and, 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 and yet, you know, that's, I guess I'd, I'd love if that house was still standing and, and, and maybe have an opportunity to walk through that living room. We have pictures of that place. And if you go here in the far end of our building, you can see some pictures of, you know, our history as we have that wall of history there. But can I say that churches are not about buildings and, and property. It's not about lands. Churches, listen, are about people. They're about people who gather in those places and, and they're about the worship that is offered in those places among those people to Almighty God. Can I say that no church is perfect? It's not perfect because it's a place, listen, a place that is designed by God to help broken and hurting people find healing. 
You need to understand that that's what you are, that's what you're coming into every time that you gather. You're coming into a place that is full of broken people who are coming here in hopes that they'll find some healing for their brokenness, for their sin, and for their sicknesses and their diseases. In fact, just, a, a week, just this week I was reading in Matthew chapter number 9, and I love what Jesus says here. In verse number 12, Jesus, uh, when he heard that, the Bible says, he said unto them, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. What he had heard is he had heard the scribes and the Pharisees criticizing him and criticizing his ministry method because Jesus spent a lot of time with, with known sinners. Now, don't misunderstand what was happening there. There's been a thought in which, you know, you know, Jesus, you know, Jesus sort of, you know, congregated with sinners as if he was involved in their activities. He was not involved in their activities. He was there rescuing them from their sin. He was there healing them from their brokenness and healing them from their sicknesses. But the Pharisees and the scribes, they didn't understand that. They kept their distance from broken people. They kept their distance from sick people. And when they began to criticize him for spending time with people like that, that that's the context of what Jesus is saying here. And Jesus, Jesus is saying, listen, uh, you know, doctors don't, don't spend all their time around healthy people. Doctors exist to sit down and to minister to help those who are sick. If you have a complete and clean bill of health today, you're probably not looking to make a, a, a trip to the doctor. It's only when you get sick, when something doesn't feel right, that you think to yourself, you know, maybe I better get in and see the doctor. Maybe he can help me because something doesn't feel right. Something doesn't seem right. And so we understand the purpose of these things. So, so get this again, that no church, listen, no church is full uh, of saints the church is full of sinners, perhaps, who have been made saints by the blood of Jesus Christ. But, but, but listen, we, we retain some level of that brokenness, don't we? we ret because we do not lose our sin nature. We, we, we carry that with us throughout life. And in the resurrection someday, I'm going to bid farewell to that. I look forward to that day. But in this day, listen, I am still navigating elements of my, of my brokenness. Can I say that the larger a church becomes the more broken people they will have navigating their way through their brokenness. Sometimes we, we, we say, Lord, Lord, bring new people into our church. Lord, bring new families. Lord, would you save the lost? And, and can I say that, listen, that's a good prayer to pray, and I think we all need to be, I think every church need to be, needs to be looking to how can they minister to new people. But understand this, listen, every person who walks in the door of a church like this one, every person, listen, is coming in this place, listen, as a broken person, no matter how together their life might look, there is a, there is a realm, there is an element of brokenness, because that's true about all of us. All of us are sinners. All of us are trying to move beyond maybe some of the scars from our past choices and our past hurts. And may, listen, may we never lose sight of the church, listen, as a hospital. May we never lose sight of the church as a homeless shelter where desperate people come to find a way through their desperation. As being a, a pastor, I spent a lot of time in hospitals. And uh, you walk down the halls of hospitals and you understand you're walking the halls where there are people who are sick and who are hurting and who are dying, some of them. And you understand that. There have been times I've been in the hospital and I've been visiting with someone and I can hear someone in the next room over, perhaps maybe even the next bed over as they cry out in agony because of the sickness and because of the pain that they're, that they're dealing with. 
Some of you perhaps have had opportunities, I have, to maybe minister in a, in a homeless shelter, whether it be the city mission or Laura's home or something along those lines that's here in our community, a, a, a place in which people come because they have nowhere else to go. And, and may, we, may we see in that as we view those types of things and we think to ourselves, thank God, thank God that I'm not there, but may we view our church in many respects as a place similar to that, a place that receives people like that with open arms that would never even even think, listen, that would never even think of turning someone away because they're too sick. They would never think of turning someone away because they're too broken, they're too destitute, they're too desperate to come in here and to be a part of what it is that we are. No, no, listen, you remember this, you remember many of you, when you came in here, you were in that condition. Perhaps Christ gave you a healing balm so that you are whole today. Or perhaps maybe he clothed you and he changed your life and he made you new. But may you never, listen, may we never look back and forget who we once were. And may we always remember that the church is a place for broken and hurting people to come and to find healing for their brokenness. I want to ask some questions as we get started this morning and over the next several uh, moments, and then into tonight, I, I want to try to answer some of these questions. And here's the question I want to ask. Where did the church come from? Whose idea was it? Who invented the church? Where did the church come from? Uh, who came up with this concept? And here's a, here's a really good question. Is it still relevant today to meet the needs of people? In other words, we, we understand, you know, Jesus is, is talking about his church here in Matthew 16, and 2,000 years of human history have come and gone. Uh, there's a lot of, of changes, there's a lot of updates that have been made to our society. The things that they did, many of the things that they did in these days, when we read the stories, we say, well, why would you do something like this? Because we don't, do, we don't live life like that anymore. So is it, is it reasonable to, to expect that the church still is to play a role today if so much has changed since Jesus uttered these words found in Matthew 16? In a world, here's another, here's a really good question. In a world filled with so many different churches and religions, how do we know which church is the right and true church? How, how do we know which one we ought to be in? How, how do we know what, what we ought to be doing and what we ought to be looking for, perhaps we can say, in the church that we are going to attend and the church that we're going to raise our family in? Here's a, here's a good question. Does the church Christ established still exist today? In other words, is there, a, is there a line of succession that we could look to? And, and we, under, we understand the, uh, the, the disciples, the church at Jerusalem uh, does, not, does not exist today. That, that's no longer in, in, in uh, meet, meeting together today. But is there, a, is there a church that is similar to that one that we could look to and that we could be a part of today? Here's another question. What kind of church should you belong to and should you be a part of? And then, and then finally, does it really matter? Does it really matter what church you would? I would say that our text in Matthew 16 reveals some very important truths about Christ's church, while at the same time, listen, at the same time, clearing up some confusion and misconceptions that are in our world today. In other words, if, if, we'll, if, if we'll study Matthew 16, other passages like it, but if we'll study this passage closely, I think, I think what we can discover is we can discover the type of church that Christ's church is. And if we, can, if we can know that, then we can examine the various churches that are available to us today and determine, well, well, then this is the church that I want to be a part of. This is where I need to be. If God were to ever move you away from here and you were settling in a new area and you didn't know where to begin, I think what's found here in Matthew 16 would be a phenomenal template 
for you to examine a church and determine whether that's the type of place that you ought to be, that you ought to be worshiping, and that you ought to be raising your family in. Now this passage, Matthew 16, if you're not aware, is one of the most misquoted and one of the most misunderstood in all of the Bible. Without a proper understanding, people have read this passage and they have elevated a man who is in this text to a place that God never intended him to be. Now, you'll, 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 you'll see that as we move through this text. Um, can I say that this, this should not surprise us? It should not surprise us to see Satan intentionally take a passage of Scripture and twist that passage to mislead many people. That's his oldest trick in the book, isn't it? He did that all the way back in the Garden of Eden where he took what God had said and he sort of twisted it around. He mangled it a little bit. And of course, we live in this broken world that we live in today. And, and we do that thanks to the fact that there was a, there was a, a husband and wife who were, uh, who were misled, who were deceived by uh, the devil's uh, oldest trick in the book. Here, here's what the devil knows. He, cannot, he knows he cannot destroy God's word. You cannot do away with this book. Listen, many, many throughout history have tried to silence this book and how it speaks. They've tried to do away with it. I'm given to understand the French philosopher, a man by the name of Voltaire, he had said, within 100 years of my life, within 100 years of my life, the Bible will no longer exist. That was his, that was his quote. He lived back in the 1700s. What do you and I hold in our laps today? We hold a copy of the Bible. Let God be true and every man a liar. So the devil knows, the devil knows that he cannot, he cannot destroy God's word. So, so here's, here's what he, he moves to, he moves to plan B. And instead, here's what he does, he works to lead people to misunderstand God's word. Or, or to create a separate meaning from, 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 what, from what's found in God's word than what God in, initially or actually intended. And, and here's what I want to say, listen, our goal when we read the Bible, and this is something that I have to I have to continually remind myself about. Our goal when we read the Bible should never be to inflict our ideas or biases into God's word. In other words, listen, all of us, all of us come to the Bible with a, with a mindset that's, that, that thinks it should be this way or it should be that way. So that when we read certain scripture passages, we sort of just mold what we're reading to the way that we think. And that's, you know, that's especially dangerous if you have been raised in church your whole life. Um, you, you, because you, you in your mind, you, sometimes you think that what you know or what you've been taught or what you believe supersedes what's actually even found here. And it is possible, it is possible for someone to perhaps have misled you along the way. And so as we come to this text and others like it, uh, we, we, we need to put aside, listen, our biases, my thoughts, my ideas, what someone else might have taught me. And what I need to figure out is, Lord, what are you trying to say here in this text? We need to try and understand what it is that God is trying to communicate to us as his people today. Now, the setting of our text is quite significant. That's why we began reading in verse number 13. And I want you to look at it. The Bible says in verse number 13 that Jesus, that he came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi. Christ and his followers at this point in time, they have wandered, listen, they have wandered, traveled far from the places where they were used to ministering, places where they were, were, were normally at. They, they at, 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 in the coast of Caesarea Philippi, they're a long way away from Capernaum. Capernaum was the headquarters of Jesus' earthly ministry. Spent a lot of time there. It's where Peter was from. 
It's where Peter, James, and John uh, there that come off the Sea of Galilee that, that early that morning, and Jesus said, follow me. That's right there on the, uh, on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. It's on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. But, but here is, uh, here are, here's, here's Jesus now. He's in the coast of Caesarea Philippi. He's a long way away from Capernaum. He's a long way away from Magdala. He's a long way away from a place called Nazareth where he grew up. Uh, the Sea of Galilee, all of those things are south of where he is now. And he's even a further distance still from Jerusalem. And it's temple filled with scribes and Pharisees and chief priests and rulers. Uh, Jesus is a long way away from those places. Caesarea Philippi, according to verse number 13, is where they were. And for those of you that may be unaware, if you were looking at a map from Bible times, you would discover that Caesarea Philippi is in the extreme north of the nation of Israel. In fact, in fact, here's what we know about it during this time. Uh, we understand that it was a heavily Gentile area. Now, this is really noteworthy. You, you perhaps have read this passage a hundred times, and you've never thought about the fact that Jesus brings up this conversation, and he first mentions the word church in Caesarea Philippi. And you might wonder, well, is there anything significant about that? I'm here to tell you that this is extremely noteworthy. It's extremely significant. The church was founded or invented by a Jew. His name is Jesus Christ. Its earliest members were primarily Jews. Peter and James and John and, and, and the others that, that followed him, they were of Jewish descent. So why in the world, here's the question, why in the world would Christ bring up this topic of conversation? Why would he choose to mention, listen, would he choose to mention the word church for the very first time, at least that's recorded for us in Scripture, why would he choose to mention it in this place that is heavily Gentile? It, does, he, does he perhaps know something that the rest of us do not know? And I think we know the answer to that question, don't we? I think we understand that though the church was invented by a Jewish man, and though its earliest members were, uh, were, were, were primarily Jewish, we understand that as we look at the totality of 2,000 years of church history, we understand that the church that Jesus Christ established would be primarily comprised of Gentiles throughout its history. Now think of the great churches and the great pastors, the great leaders and missionaries and the like over the past two millennia. What do most of them have in common? With few exceptions, they are all Gentiles. That doesn't mean that the church turns its back on the Jewish people, that we try not to win them to Christ, that we don't send missionaries to minister to them. But here's what it does mean. It, it means this, that Christ knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he knew, listen, he knew that in the coast of Caesarea Philippi, in a heavily Gentile area, he was introducing the concept of his church with a, with a forward-thinking idea that the church primarily is going to be a Gentile group of people. I don't know about you, but that ought, to, that ought to convince us just a little bit more if we need any more convincing of just who Jesus is. That he had that sort of foresight and that sort of thinking in his, in his mind. And with his disciples in this place, he asked two questions. And these questions are of supreme importance. These two questions can be combined into one. And here, here they are, here they are. And the questions that he's asking here are this. Who is Jesus? Uh, that's what he's asking. He begins by, he, he begins by saying this, Wh whom do men say that I am? And of course, they give some answers. And eventually, eventually he comes to this. He says, well, no, hold on a minute. Let's forget about what other people say. Who do you say that I am? 
But both questions, both questions deal with the same thing, and that is this, who is Jesus? Now the answer, listen, the answer to this question is of the greatest significance. What I mean by that is this, answer this question right, and eternal life is your reward. Answer this question wrong, and eternal death is the consequence. You and I, listen, we need to transition our heart and life from wondering what, who does everyone else think Christ is to who do you think Christ Jesus is? In other words, that, that's, that's when salvation comes to a heart and a life. When someone says, you know, I'm not, I'm not concerned about what my mommy thought who Jesus was or what, who my daddy thought Jesus was or, or, or who my grandparents thought Jesus was or even who my childhood pastor thought Jesus was. But, but here's what I want to answer. Who do I think Jesus is? Who do I believe Jesus to be? Can I say that this text is more than just a conversation about who Jesus is? And Jesus uses this question and Peter's answer to give a foundation on which he would build his church. Now many, here's, here's the misunderstood part of it, many have assumed that the foundation for Christ's church was, was Peter based on Christ's words that are found here. But the reality is, the reality is, listen, no sinful man could ever be the foundation for such a spiritual house. Peter is a sinful man just like you and I are. In fact, we see evidences of that, don't we, in Scripture? We find that Peter went so far as even to betray and, and, and to deny the Lord three times in the Lord's most, most desperate hour when he needed his followers to be as close to him as possible. Three times Jesus, Jesus said, I, I don't even know who you're talking about. I've never seen him before. I don't know who he is. He went so far. He went so far as to curse and to swear, uh, to, to further legitimize the, the statement that he was making that he had never been around the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know that, we know that Peter is a sinful man. We know that he's a sin, sinful man. And, and a sinful man cannot be the foundation for a spiritual house like this. A brief study of the Greek and which this conversation is recorded for us reveals that Christ refers to Peter as, as Petros. Uh, that's a capital P there, which signifies, here's the exact, exact meaning of it. It means a piece of rock, a piece of rock. So a, a piece of it maybe were to break away and you'd have a, a small, maybe a little pebble or a stone. That, that's what Jesus says when he says, he says, I say unto thee, thou art Peter. He says, I say unto thee, thou art Petrus. You're, you're a piece of a rock. However, he goes on to say the next phrase, he says, upon this rock, he does not say upon this Petrus, upon you, he says upon this rock, the word there is Petra, not Petros. And it, and it literally means not a piece of rock, but it means a mass of rock, or a bedrock, we might say. And so here, here's the point, Peter's confession, listen, Peter's confession is the mass of rock upon which Christ builds his church. Jesus does not build his church upon a man. Roy Thompson is the founding pastor of the Cleveland Baptist Church and how we loved him. What a great man he was. He's been, he's been with the Lord now 12 years. Pray for his wife. She's dealing with some health issues of her own and, and needs our prayers and, and certainly loves this church. In fact, I was there and visiting with her on Friday and, and still has a ministry mindset, though she really can't even much get out of bed and get to where she wants to go and where she needs to go. She's thinking about ministry and about people that she's ministered to. It was an incredible blessing to my heart and to my life. But you know, the truth of the matter is Cleveland Baptist Church goes on even though Roy Thompson has been gone now for 12 years. It, 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 that's the way it's supposed to be. Because God does not build his church on a man. Uh, well, we, we, we maybe can rephrase that. God does not build his church upon a man like you and me. God builds his church upon the God-man, his son, Jesus Christ. 
And, and what people believe about that man, that's the mass of rock. Pe- Listen, Peter understood, don't miss this, Peter understood what Jesus was saying here. Because Peter would later write in 1 Peter 2, verses 6 to 8, he would say, Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Sion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. You know what Peter's, Peter's saying? Peter's acknowledging, I'm not that chief cornerstone. Peter is referencing here the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, we have 2,000 years of history in which many people have believed that Peter is the rock upon which Jesus built the church. But but Peter himself, in his own words, says, I'm not that rock. I'm not the chief cornerstone. Oh no, God laid a cornerstone. His His name is Jesus. He goes on to say, unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. Now Peter's writing this and he's using the word he. He's talking about someone else. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Now listen, do, do not miss this. Do not miss this. Listen, all of us are the same. Be reminded of that. All of us are the same. No matter, no matter how wealthy you are, no matter what accomplishments you have, no matter how well known you are, listen, we're all the same. We come from dust, and we will return to the dust according to Scripture. Amen. Say, well, then what gives, what gives us everlasting significance and hope? It's not found in who we are. Everlasting significance and hope is not found in your last name. It's not found in the career that you have or the neighborhood that you live in or the car that you drive. Or how much money you have in your bank account. Listen, listen, everlasting significance is not found in who we are, but rather it is found in whom we believe. That's where everlasting truth and hope and significance is found. You and I, listen, Peter, Peter is a rock and, and, and would remain that throughout his life. He's a piece of rock. He, he's, a, he's a piece of what God is going to do in the church, but he is not the foundation. He is not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. The church is not built on any man or upon any woman. The church is built on Jesus and who he is. Now, how do you know? How do you know you're in Christ's church? I believe, I believe that Christ gives us three identifiers that reveal if a church is one of his. These identifiers are found, I believe, in our text. And I I highly recommend, if you're here this morning and you're seeking what kind of church does God want me to be in, what kind of church does he want my family to be in, or if, if if you're here, you're a member of this church already, you can use these things to examine, am I in the right place? And then I would say this, if God ever leaves you away from here to relocate somewhere else, uh, whatever the case might be, I would urge you very strongly to, to use this text and these parameters to define what Christ's church is because, again, they're given to us here. He expects us to use these. Life, listen, life is too short to be in a church that isn't biblical. So here's the question. Does our church meet the standards that Christ set for his church? Let me share them with you. We'll, we'll probably just be able to cover the first one uh, this morning, and then we'll cover the final two tonight. Number one, I want to say this, that Christ's church is identified by proper doctrine. Christ's church is identified by proper doctrine. And, and, and here's, here's, really, here's really what we, we want to we discover from, from the text. Number one, number one is this. What does a church believe about Jesus? What does a church believe about Jesus? 
Now listen, if the church, if the church answers this question right, well, then you're moving in the right direction. But if the church answers this question wrong, you better run as far away from that church as humanly possible. What does a church believe about Jesus? Jesus asked these questions in verse number, verse number 14, or verse number 13, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Verse number 15, but whom say ye that I am? Jesus asked his followers, what are you hearing among others, our ministry is beginning to expand and people are hearing about us and they're bringing their sick and they're hurting to us. What are you hearing among others regarding who I am? And the answers, of course, were varied. Some thought that Jesus was John the Baptist, brought back to life from the dead. Others thought that Elijah had returned, while others still wondered if maybe he's Jeremiah or some other prophet restored to life. Now here's what, I, here's what I find. The church should be out in the community enough proclaiming Christ that we, that we could give a solid answer to this question as well. In other words, if Jesus were to appear here today and he were to, he were to come to you and he were to ask this question, who do your neighbors say that I am? That's a convicting question, isn't it? Is it possible, is it possible that you don't even know what your neighbors would say about Jesus? You've never tried to engage with them in conversation about Jesus. If, if he were to come to us as a church and he would say, hey, Northeast Ohio as a whole, who, who do they say that I am? Would we even be able to give an answer? Are we, are we having enough spiritual conversations with people to bring them to that point where, where we begin to ask the question, hey, do you know who Jesus is? What do you think about Jesus? And here's what you'll discover today. You start talking about Jesus and it's all over the board. Some people believe that he was just a great teacher. He was just a great religious leader. Some people believe that he is one of the ways to be saved, to get to heaven. Some people believe that he is a blasphemer. Do you, do you know that there are people that, that believe that he never even existed? That it's all just a made-up story? Uh, regardless of the, uh, of the fact that the vast majority of human history for the last 2,000 years have been marked by his life, there are people who live around us who believe that the whole thing is a myth. It's just a fairy tale. There are some that believe he was just a normal man. He was just a preacher. He was just a teacher. Whatever the case might be. But here's the question. What do your neighbors, what do your coworkers, what does your family say about who Jesus is? Do you know the answer to that question? He asked his disciples, and they gave him an answer, a concrete answer. The church, listen, the church should know what their neighbors think. What about your boss? Does he know? Does he know? Have you, have you talked to him? Have you engaged with him in a conversation? How about your doctor? The person that you go to see, the, what about your dentist? You know, does, does, does he know? Does, does she know? What about your hairdresser? Does the person who cut your hair know who Jesus is? Do you know what they say about Jesus? Have you had a conversation with them? How about the, the, the people that we go to school with and the people that we, uh, that, that we live around and that we live near? We ought to be spending enough time with them and having enough spiritual conversations with them that we can, we can, we can gather from, from them who they think Jesus is so that if they have a misunderstanding, we can boldly preach and proclaim the truth of who Jesus is to them. That's the, that's the role of the church. He is bringing this to their attention. And again, we... We need to know what our community, how our community would answer this question. We don't base, listen, we do not base our beliefs upon what our region's answer to this question would be, but we should be present in our community enough to be able to answer it. But then he transitions after verse number 14, and he gets a little bit more pointed, and he asks this question, but whom say ye that I am? 
In other words, he says, you know, enough, enough about others and what others think and what others assume. Jesus cuts to the most important thing when he asks them what they believe about who Jesus is. Can I say this? A church isn't worth your time if they don't know who Jesus is. I mean, honestly, if the, if the pastor, the leader of that church, or if the, if, the, if the elders or the deacons or whatever of that church, if they don't know who Jesus is, then it's, it's not worth being there. You're wasting your time. A church should know who Jesus is. And we never want to assume, we never want to assume that just because someone is sitting in our congregation on a Sunday morning or on a Sunday night or on a Wednesday night, we never want to assume that they just automatically know who Jesus is. Do you know who Jesus is? I mean, do you really know, know who he is? Do you understand the role that he longs to play in your heart and your life? Do you understand how much he loves you? And do you understand the, the depths to which he suffered so that he could secure your soul's eternal destiny? Do you know who Jesus is? It's a good question. According to Peter's confession, and Jesus' acknowledgement that his confession is accurate, Jesus is the following. Number one, he is the Messiah. He is the Messiah. A church, listen, a church, in order to be Christ's church, they must know who Jesus is. They must proclaim him, first of all, to be the Messiah. Look what Peter says in verse number 16. Thou art the Christ. The term Christ is another term for Messiah, and it, and it literally means the anointed one. It's, it's, it's Jesus' official title. Jesus is his name. Christ is who he is. That, that, that's, his, that's his title. Uh, he was promised, listen, all the way back at the beginning of the Bible, he is promised to be the deliverer of man's sin and man's wickedness. And Peter is admitting that Jesus is much more than just a preacher. You see, John the Baptist was a preacher. Jeremiah was a preacher. Elijah was a preacher or a prophet. But, but, but Peter says, listen, those men weren't the Christ. Those men weren't the Messiah. Oh, they were, they were good men. They were godly men. They did the work that God called them to do. They were God-called men. But, but those men can never, listen, those men can never take away a single one of your sins. Take takes somebody, takes somebody unique and special to be able to do that. That's exactly who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is the one who is sent by God. He is more than just a preacher. He is more than just a prophet. He is more than just a religious influencer or religious leader. He is, listen, he is the savior of the entire world. That's who Jesus is. Any church that preaches salvation in any other name or in any other thing, then Jesus is confused about who Jesus is. There's a lot of churches that say, yeah, you have to believe on Jesus, but you also have to be baptized. And you also have to attend church faithfully. And you also have to do good works. And you, you, know, you have to jump through this hoop. And you have to take this class. And you have to go through this particular uh, teaching or seminar or whatever the case might be. And then you've gotta, then you just got to hope that everything is going to be okay. Let me, let me just tell you, if that's what they teach, then they don't know who Jesus is. Because Jesus came, listen, Jesus came to fulfill all of the law. Jesus came, listen, Jesus did all of those works so that you don't have to because you and I could never do all of those things. That's who Jesus is. And churches, listen, a church that doesn't know, doesn't know that Jesus is the Messiah is not, is not Christ's church. Now they can, have, they can have the name church over their sign and over their doors you walk in, but if they don't preach that Jesus is the Messiah, they're not, they're not his church. He says, I have a church. I will build my church. And they, they, they might be, consider themselves a church, but they're not Christ's church. 
Who is Jesus? Who is he? The Bible says in 1 John 5 and verse number 1, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Perhaps maybe you've You've assumed that you're on your way to heaven because you're a pretty good person or because you go to church every Sunday or because you were born in the United States of America or you give money to the poor or or, or you're, again, just a good citizen. But let me just tell you something. You're not born of God until you believe that Jesus is the Christ. And implied in that, implied in that is an understanding that I am a sinner, that I am a broken person, and that Jesus Christ came and he died, he suffered, he bled on an old rugged cross to pay, listen, to pay my sin debt. That's what it means to believe that Jesus is the Christ. To look at him and to say, Lord, I I, I repent of my sin. I understand, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner and that you are the Savior he is the Messiah. What does the church believe about Jesus? He is the Messiah, but notice secondly, implied in Peter's confession, in Christ's acknowledgement of Peter's confession, Jesus is not only the Messiah, but notice secondly, he is the Son of God. Amen. He's divine. He is deity. In other words, here's what that means. that means. That means he's more than just a man, but he's God at the same time. Now think about that for a moment. It's an incredible thought. If you and I try to put that together in our minds, it'll, it'll cause our minds to explode to try to figure all of that out. But listen, don't, don't lose sight of this. The Bible says without faith it is impossible to please him. There are things about Jesus that we just have to accept by faith. He is, listen, he is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the savior of the world. But number two, he is the son of God. And Christ acknowledged that Peter here is, makes this confession that Jesus is the Son of God. And listen, if the son of Peter Folger is a Folger, what does that make the Son of God? Now think about that for a moment. You know, if I, if I look at my son, I say, he's the son, he, he's the son of Peter Folger, that makes him a what? It makes him a Folger. And that may be good, it may be bad, I don't know, but that's what it makes him, right? When Jesus, when Jesus proclaims himself to be the Son of God, listen, what does that make him? Makes him God. And that's exactly who he is. Jesus is God. He is more than just a mere mortal man. He is the eternal, the omniscient, the omnipotent God. He is the creator and sustainer of life. Listen, any church that is Christ's accepts him as the son of God and God in the flesh. So I wouldn't spend, I wouldn't spend, a, I wouldn't spend but one service in a church that didn't believe that Jesus is the son of God. I wouldn't waste my time in a church that is uncertain about who Jesus was. A church that is not boldly proclaiming that Jesus is divine, that he is God in the flesh, that he truly is the Son of God. The Bible is clear. First John 4, verses 14 and 15, and we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. There's a connection to be made there. You cannot be saved. Listen, you cannot be saved unless you believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Unless you admit that Jesus is the Son of God, you cannot be born again. The Bible is clear. You must confess that Jesus is more than just like you and me. If he's just like you and me, he's not much of a Savior. But if he's the Son of God, oh, that makes him different. That elevates him. That makes him a capable Savior. So what does a church believe about who Jesus is? But secondly, I, I think we find a, another clue here that is important that we ought to analyze when considering what a church believes, and that is number two, what does a church believe about the Bible? Because I, I find that that's, 
that's found here in verse number 17. I don't know that I ever saw it until I was studying it this week. But Jesus, when he commends Peter, he says something very interesting. And I want you to see it. Again, we're, we're, we're building a case for what church is Jesus' church. What he says in verse number 17, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. So, what does the church preach? And what does the church teach? Does the, does the church preach and teach the philosophies of flesh and blood? Does the church, is the church to teach and preach what, what I think or what you think? No, no, listen, listen. In order to be Christ's church, the church must preach and teach what the Father has revealed from heaven. And what is that? Well, according to our Bible, that's this book. What does a church believe about the Bible? Christ acknowledged that Peter's statement or confession, it did not originate, listen, it did not come from within himself. Now, I, I'm just thinking that Peter, probably he spoke up and he boldly proclaimed it. And I'm reading a little bit more into this maybe than I should. But I'm thinking Peter's sitting here saying, you know, I'm the spokesman here. And, and, and Jesus begins to commend him. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. And if, if, if that Peter's anything like this Peter, he's sitting here going, thank you very much. Yes. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, I got that right. And then, then, then Peter, then Jesus deviates, doesn't he? Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. And he says this. He says, flesh and blood didn't, didn't c- c- communicate this to you. He said, this came, from, this came from the Father which is in heaven. That, uh, that, that look of pride upon Peter's face probably dissipated quite quickly because Peter realized, I, I, I had nothing to do with this. God gave me, God gave me this. God gave me this truth. And can I say that a church must be so careful not to base what they believe and not to base what they preach and teach on what some man or woman teaches or believes. But rather, they must be diligent to gather their doctrine, their beliefs, their teachings from God's word, the Bible. Several years ago, I led a man to Christ, and we began the process of discipleship. And, and he would ask a lot of questions. He had a lot of questions for me. And every question he would ask, he would say, well, what do you think about this? And what, is, you know, what do you guys believe about that? And almost every question he would ask, I would say, well, you know, the Bible says, or I'd say, well, let's take our Bibles, let's go here. And finally, he stopped me. This has been going on for several weeks. Finally, he stopped me, and he, he looked at me. He said, why do you always say the Bible says? And I thought, well, this is a great teaching point. Because that's, that's all that matters. When we're talking about spiritual truth, who cares what I think? And I say this respectfully, who cares what you think? What does this book say? What does God think? He's given us a book. Why do you suppose he, gave, he went to all the trouble over a period of 1,500 years, more than 40 authors? He carefully gave us this book. Don't you expect that he thinks we should read it and that we ought to live by it and that we ought to base our beliefs and our teachings and our, uh, that it ought to be the guide for the things that we do? This book, the Bible, ought to be the sole foundation for everything that we do as a church. Many falsely assume that this book is just a collection of writings from men. The Bible is clear that it is much more than a book filled with the thoughts of men. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Here's what we believe. We believe in a, in a Bible in which every word, every word was carefully given by God. There no, there's no mistakes here. 
That God chose us and God carefully chose every word. You know, I'm sometimes so flippant in my conversations. And sometimes I just, I just say the first thing that comes to my mind. And that gets me in trouble sometimes. Does it, does, am I the only one in here? Can I get a witness that you just open your mouth and you start talking, you're going to get in trouble. But I find, I find that when I sit down and maybe I type something out as an email or maybe a text, sometimes I read it over and over again because I want to make sure. I want to make sure that I'm, I'm giving it and it's, it's being stated in the right way. And listen, listen the, the eternal God of the universe communicates to us through his word communicates to us through this book, the Bible, and it is, every word is inspired, and it is profitable. It's profitable for our daily lives, but it's profitable for our church and the way that we go about things. The Bible says in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, knowing this first, that no prophecy, not a single prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, not by flesh and blood. That's what he's saying. He said, not by flesh and blood. He's, he's affirming what Jesus told him all those years prior as he writes this epistle. This is Peter writing. And he says, the, the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now listen, we're living in a generation that views this book as it would any other book. But can I say, this book is not the same as any other book. This book is God's word, and the things revealed in this book are from God in heaven. You, you might wonder, what does Cleveland Baptist Church believe about this book? Here's what we believe. We believe it's the word of God. And we don't just believe it contains the word of God. We believe it is the word of God. And here's, here's what else we believe. We believe that because it's the word of God, then it is, listen, then it is, it is, it is incumbent upon God's people to figure out what does it say and to live according to this book. And beyond that, we believe, we believe it is incumbent upon God's church that they don't sit back and say, you know, well, what does the culture think or what do we want to do or what's the most popular thing? But rather, but rather, the, the church says, what does God's word preach and teach? And we'll do that. What does this church, what does Cleveland Baptist Church believe about Jesus? I'm glad you asked. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We believe that he is the Savior of the world and we believe that he is the Son of God. 